Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, Heard Tell show, February the 4th, year of our Lord 2022. So glad you're with us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for your time. Most precious thing you have. And we appreciate when you share an hour of it with us each and every weekday. We sure appreciate it. We're not going to waste it today because we got a lot to get to. Uh, Mark Yizagiri, he has written extensively about the demographic movement inside Latino populations, how they are changing politically, how the narratives aren't matching up what's happening at the polling, how things are not what they appear. He's written about it. He's going to talk about it. It's an election year. It's going to come up again. He wrote an evergreen piece in Ordinary Times. We're going to delve into it at length with him, Mark Izaguri, later in the program. Great story out in Montana where some stranded truckers got some home cooking. Get into that in the final segment of the program. Also, uh, stories about the NRA financials looking bleak for that organization. Stephen Gakowski's great Substack, The Reload, which you need to subscribe to, has the details. We're going to dig into that story. Also, a great story of a guy who got hacked by North Korea. The only problem was he's a hacker, so he hacked him right back and took the country's entire internet offline. We'll get to that story. But first, let's talk about uh, President Biden's latest announcement. He has instituted a cancer cabinet. Uh, That's an idea I believe came from the West Wing, but whatever. Uh, Cancer moonshot is what they're calling it. They're going to try to do something to half the deaths and the awfulness of cancer. Now, let's let's just start up front with some grown folk talk here. I'm all for getting rid of cancer. It's terrible. It's touched my family. It's touched your family. Almost everybody, I think, knows somebody who has to deal with cancer. It's horrible. I hate it. I would love to get rid of cancer. I don't know the federal government's going to be the best way to do that, but fine, let's put all our resources towards trying to get rid of cancer. But it also goes to show something else politically going on and a criticism I've had of the Biden administration. Yes, I want to cure cancer. Yes, I think a whole government focus against cancer is a perfectly fine thing, but this is a very big thing. This is a very splashy thing. This is a big goal. They're even calling it a moonshot. Can they do this? I hope so. I hope they're successful. I hope we do more to do about cancer. I don't care if the government or the private sector either one solves it as long as it gets solved. I figure it needs to be a mix of the two, but that's another matter for another day. Is it good governance? Is it a good thing for him to announce? It's fine. It's not going to hurt anything. But there's an old saying, faithful in the little things. My criticisms of this administration has been that they have been obsessed with optics They're obsessed with quick fixes. They're obsessed with political fixes where policy fixtures need to be and where good foreign policy needs to be. We talked about Afghanistan recently. They weren't prepared. Story after story is coming out. They were worried about the optics. They were not sufficiently prepared. The Omicron variant and the Delta variant, they were not prepared. 
They didn't see them coming, even though everybody knew variants were coming. And this isn't because Biden's a Democrat or whatever that meant. If it was Republican and president, I'd have the same criticism. If you're in the chair, I don't care what your political party is. I don't care what your ideology are. You're accountable for what you do when you're in the chair with the title, with the big paycheck and the big title. You're the president. You're in charge. It's on you. You have to be accountable. I find this president to be unfaithful in the little things. He has not handled his legislative agenda well. They overshot for what they had for a 50-50 Senate. I know there's political things to be entailed there as well, but he didn't handle it well. They could have gotten smaller things done that were more targeted. They wanted big FDR thing without the FDR two-thirds majority of Congress to slam them through. Unfaithful in the little things. He has gone to optics over and over and over again. We needed to have some sober policy discussions. Unfaithful in the little things. His own White House, we just covered it a couple days ago here on Hertel, story after story of media backbiting. Remember, there's no such thing as a leak, spreading the blame, scapegoating people. He could shut a lot of that down. Unfaithful in the little things. Even his own vice president, he could have shut down a lot of that stuff. I, You can have your opinions on Vice President Harris, whether she's doing a job well or not. A lot of the criticisms coming out of her office are criticisms that were also on her presidential campaign. So there's probably some fire where that smoke is. The president could have shut that down anytime he wanted to. He did not. Unfaithful in the little things. We have 50 years of book on Joe Biden. We know who he is, what he's about. He does all shucks and gets along with people and empathetic and all that good stuff. When he doesn't get his way, he goes to temper and screaming and cursing. That's not my opinion. That's years and years of book on who the man is. But he was elected to be president as a return to normal candidate. He was supposed to be not Trump. The shelf life on not Trump was about seven or eight months ago. He's now the president. We have a lot of little things over a year to judge him on. And we're allowed to judge him on because he works for us, not the other way around. In a lot of things, in a lot of areas, I find the president of the United States to have been unfaithful in the little things. I understand he has tough sledding. I understand he has a split Congress. I understand the media environment. Look, every president has that. He's still president. We judge him accordingly. Before we go shooting moonshots for solving cancer, and before we start doing these big splashy things that I suspect strongly will not have a lot of back-end success to back them up, Mr. President, I would just prefer you focus on the little things. The country will be better for it. And you'd even get more credit, and it might help that approval rating of yours just a little bit. A lot to cover today's short opening segment. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, have you ever checked out the uh, the Reload? It's a Substack newsletter service and website. Uh, our friend Stephen Kukowski. Uh, started this. Uh, it is an excellent resource. Folks first noticed the reload and Stephen's work when he basically single-handedly took down the ATF nominee from the Biden administration a few months ago. That was him. He broke the story, stayed with the story. Uh, people attacked him for it. Turned out his information was 100% correct, and that uh, nominee was withdrawn. But he covers things fairly, uh, even though they're obviously from the right side of the paradigm. They're more conservative and they are advocates for the Second Amendment. He covers things fairly and they have been doing yeoman's work on the utter disintegration of the National Rifle Association. And there's another piece out today, date of February the 3rd. Uh, Stephen Gakowski wrote this one, quote, the National Rifle Association of America shrank significantly through the first eight months of 2021, according to the detailed financial records obtained by the reload. The contraction 
came in membership revenue and program services across the organization. The group's income missed the mark against its own budget projections and against what it brought in over the same period in 2020. At the same time, spending on legal services exceeded both. Legal fees ballooned to more than $6.5 million from 2020 for a total of $31.1 million, or about 20% of the group's entire expenses. The amount spent on lawyers was more than 10 times the amount the NRA spent on programs aimed at education and training, competitive shooting, law enforcement, community engagement, the NRA range, the NRA fire, firearms museum. Those are both physical facilities, by the way. Uh, so they have massive overhead costs and school securities combined, you know, all the stuff the NRA is supposed to be doing. Legal fees were the second largest expense for the organization behind costs associated with getting and keeping members, i.e. fundraising. The gun rights group membership fell to its lowest point since 2017. Its revenue dropped by $165.2 million, missing its own projection by almost $20 million. That brings revenue to nearly half of what was brought in in 2018. Thanks mostly to a drop in membership dues. Spending is down even further in 2018. The group spent more than it brought in, but it has paid down $14 million of its debt and run a slight surplus through August of 2021. They also have some graphs here to show all this data, but here's the nut at the bottom. The organization's approach to its finances does reverse the deficits it has accumulated post-2016. That's when all this controversy started, especially about uh, Wayne LaPriere's management and other things. Um, we'll get to that some other time, Mittendorf said. Yet the alarms for long-term success remain. Drastic declines in spending on core operations create a potential for revenue death spiral, that's in quotes, in which the cuts in core programs scare off members, which in turn necessitates further cuts. And a downward cycle of this sort can be very hard to reverse. That's from Stephen Kukowski, uh, the Reload uh, website. Wherever you are on the Second Amendment issue, I recommend you read his stuff because he calls it down the middle. He calls it fair, even though he is a Second Amendment advocate, not afraid to call out people like the NRA. Why cover this story? Why does it matter? Because in the news media narrative, which we're always trying to turn down the noise are, the NRA and gun owners was always used synonymously, as if one was the other. And it was never really true. The NRA was only a fraction of gun owners in America. But because they were the loudest and they were the most politically active, they were the front for most of the media narrative involving gun groups, even though they were never more than just a fraction of gun owners. The story here is, it was not that long ago, within my lifetime, the NRA was still mostly a bipartisan organization. It was not unusual for both Democrat and Republicans to seek an NRA endorsement on matters of the Second Amendment. The last 30, 40 years, the Second Amendment has become highly polarized and highly politicized, and the NRA was at the forefront of that. There is a massive lesson to learn here about not just a political cause or an ideological cause like the Second Amendment, like the right to own and bear arms as is enshrined in our Constitution and what that means and how it should be applied. That's something we should hash out as a society while respecting people's rights to do so. But that's not the story here. The story here is an organization that lost its way, who started out being bipartisan, being about gun safety and gun advocacy and those sorts of things, and now they are in a death spiral of debt and controversy of their own making. They started chasing the money that came from polarized politics. Remember NRA TV? Massive outlays for that. 
We had some good old-fashioned corruption, and the reload has detailed a lot of that. You can go back and read it. Wayne LaPierre and the other leadership of the NRA grossly using funds for their own enrichment and not for what organization is supposed to be doing. Their status is under attack from the New York Attorney General and others. They're in a bankruptcy situation. This is all the NRA's fault. You can say, you know, the liberals are out to get them or whoever else. And that's probably true to a certain extent. Corruption, mishandling funds, enriching yourself, overgrowing and chasing. We were always talking about audience capture. The NRA wanted to capture political polarization because it really bumped up those fundraising numbers. They did this to themselves. And now you see what's happening. A gun rights organization who supports the Second Amendment and lobbies and does the grunt work legislatively would be really important. But the NRA hasn't been that for a long time. They've been a fundraising mechanism. They've been a political organization. And they wanted all that money that came from the Trump era. And they got it. And now they're reaping the whirlwind for it. Because come to find out, if you get rid of your core principles, you wind up spending more money on legal fees, protecting your own corruption, than on advocating for something really important like the Second Amendment. I've got no sympathy for the NRA. They did it to themselves, like we've said on this program over and over again, whether it's the government, an individual, or an organization. If you're not accountable, bad stuff happens. The NRA went years and years and years with no accountability. They got dollar signs in their eyes, and they did things for fundraising purposes instead of what was better for their organization, their organization's members, and for the cause that they said was the most important thing for them. But their actions say the most important thing for them was money, power, and status. And you see where it led them. The Second Amendment will be fine. Other people will come up to start advocating for them. Again, the NRA was never a majority of gun owners or sports enthusiasts in the country. They've always been just a fraction of that. They were just the front face of it. But the people who didn't hold themselves accountable and tried to hide behind that politically when really it was their own corruption that was the problem, they're getting theirs now. And they deserve it. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Now, we always talk about the fact that you are the media. If you have a cell phone, if you have a social media account, quit complaining about the media, go do something about it because you are part of the media now. This, along the same line of thought, is somebody else who took matters into their own hands. From, from Wired, this is written by Andy Greenberg, a senior writer for them. For the past two weeks, observers of North Korea's strange and tightly restricted corners of the internet began to notice that the country seemed to be dealing with some serious connectivity problems. On several different days, practically all of its websites, the notoriously isolated nation only has a few dozen, intermittently dropped offline in mass from the booking sites for its Air Coro airline to Nanaira, a page that serves as the official portal for dictator Kim Jong-un's government. At least one of the central routers that allow access to the country's networks appeared at one point to be paralyzed, crippling the hermit kingdom's digital connection to the outside world. Some North Korean watchers pointed out that the country had just carried out a series of missile tests implying that a foreign government hackers might have launched a cyber attack against the rogue state to tell it to stop saber rattling. But that wasn't the case. Reading from Wired, 
but some responsibility for North Korea's ongoing internet outages doesn't lie with U.S. Cyber Command or any other state-sponsored hacking agency. In fact, it was the work of one American man in a t-shirt, pajama pants, and slippers, sitting in his living room night after night, watching alien movies and eating spicy corn snacks, and periodically walking over to his home office to check the progress of the programs he was running to disrupt the internet of an entire country. For over a year, an independent hacker who goes by the handle P4X was himself hacked by North Korean spies. P4X was just one victim of a hacking campaign that targeted Western security researchers with the apparent aim of stealing their hacking tools and details about software vulnerabilities. He said he managed to prevent those hackers from swiping anything valuable, but he nonetheless felt deeply unnerved that the state-sponsored hacking program targeted him personally and the lack of any visible response from the U.S. government. So, after a year of letting his resentment simmer, P4X has taken matters into his own hands. Quote, I felt like the right thing to do here if they don't want to see we have teeth is just going to keep coming, says the hacker. Uh, P4X, and there's a note here that he spoke to Wire and shared screen recording to verify his responsibility, but declined to use his real name for obvious reasons because he's ticking off a dictatorial murderous regime overseas. Don't blame him a bit. Back to the piece. Quote, I want them to understand that if you come at us, it means some of your infrastructure is going to go down for a while. End quote. P4X says he found numerous known but unpatched vulnerabilities in North Korean systems that have allowed him to single-handedly launch denial-of-service attacks on the servers and routers of the country's few internet-connected networks depend on. For the most part, he declined to publicly reveal those vulnerabilities, which he argues would help the North Korean government defend against his attacks, but he named, as an example, a known bug in the web server software Engine X, that's N-G-I-N-X, that mishandles certain HTTP headers, allowing the servers that run the software to be overwhelmed and knocked offline. He also alluded to finding ancient versions of the web server software Apache and says he started to examine North Korean's own national homebrewed operating system, known as Red Star OS, which he described as an old and likely vulnerable version of Linux. P4X says he has largely automated his attacks on the North Korean systems, periodically running scripts and enumerated which systems remain online and then launching exploits to take them down. Quote, for me, this is like the size of a small to medium Pinterest. P4X says using the abbreviation for penetration test, not Pinterest where you get recipes and such from. The sort of white hat, white hat hacking, say that three times fast if you're from Somersville, he's carried out in the past to reveal vulnerabilities in a client's network. It's pretty interesting how easy it was to actually have been some effective here. Those relatively simple hacking methods have had an immediate effect. Records from the uptime measuring service Pingdom show that at several points during P4X's hacking, almost every North Korean website went down. A cybersecurity researcher who monitors the North Korean internet says he began to observe what appeared to be mysterious mass scale attacks on the country's internet starting two weeks ago and has since closely tracked the attacks without having any idea who was carrying them out. Turns out it was P4X in his living room, in his pajama pants, in his slippers, getting revenge. Best served cold on the internet against the hermit kingdom. Be careful who you make upset online. They may just retaliate by taking down an entire country's internet. Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of dictators. More Heard Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. 
hot topic because he wrote the piece about it over two years ago and it still gets good numbers and it keeps coming up because it's an issue that keeps evolving and growing and people just can't seem to get their heads around it how the latino communities are growing politically our buddy mark Gary, see, I knew I was going to blow it. Just say your own. Isagera, that was close enough. That's Isagera. good. That's good. <laughs> Man, I just got done doing an interview with some folks from West Virginia, so the accent got on strong. And Isagera, Mark Isagera, he writes better than I say. Great guy. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time good. today. Good, good. Thanks for having me on the show. He's an attorney in the Houston area. We have to disclaim it. That doesn't mean he's your attorney, so you can't get legal <laughs> advice from him. But he's a good guy, good writer. He wrote an Ordinary Dash Times about uh, the Latino growth in the Rio Grande Valley, Texas, an area he knows well. He wrote that clear back in 2020, but it keeps coming up, Mark, because I don't know that folks can really get their head around the fact that we saw the census data. The Latino population is the fastest growing but it's growing organically. It's actually not through immigration. It is now through births and the death ratio. Folks just can't get their head around this. Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of it's been, the assumption has been immigration and, and, and the centrality of immigration as far as being both a political issue and the assumption that this was the, that the rise is going to be constantly from that. And I think it's something that it's, it, People have often have forgotten that, particularly in Texas. I mean, my family settled in Texas when it was still a Spanish colony. You know, I mean, there have been people there who've been there for a real long time, and the nat- and it's been all natural increase there. You know, for many generations, bolstered by people co- by people coming in from from Mexico and other parts of Latin America, particularly Mexico in in, in Texas, particularly. And so that, that's one aspect that I think, and things that immigration has declined. Also, the birth rate in Mexico has declined dramatically. I mean, a lot of it, has, it can be also explained by the fact that in Mexico, I think, I think you know, several generations ago, that the, the birth rate was like you know, four or five, you know, per, while now it's close to the United States, more like a replacement rate of two. So people are staying, and um, so so that's that's feeding it. So you so now you have people who are here. And, you've, and then you have the people who've been here for very long standing, but then the ones who've been here for a gener- generation or two, um, they're, you know, it's a, a, a politically incorrect term, assimilating, you know, some, a bit of assimilation in the population, but also, you know, they also come with their own beliefs and their own customs and their own views. And, and with respect to voting, you know, a lot of it has been more conservative than people have given it credit for. And while they voted for the Democrats, and um, and I, you know, I'm Democrat. You know, and, you know, voted Democrat for years. Um, that uh, the, the Democratic Party in, say, South Texas, is very going to be very different than the Democratic Party in Dallas, much less in New York or you know or, or Chicago. And the and so you have a, you've had a certain conservatism that's that's always been there that that didn't necessarily manifest in in voting for the Republicans for a whole lot of reasons. But a lot of those reasons aren't necessarily that different than other southern than than white voters in other southern states. Um, and you talk about it being more of an organic thing than a political thing. We're talking kind of the old term, the I hate to put it this way, but the pre-Trump definition of conservatives. Um, obviously, uh, historically, a lot of Catholics, very family centered, family values type issues. But you also talk about just professionally. Uh, one of the great lines you had in the piece that keeps getting play on the commentary was, you know, you talk about things with the police issue. Well, in places like the Rio Grande Valley, they are the police now. They are the they are the lower level administrators in local government, in the mm-hmm. school boards, in things like this. 
Um, that's part of that assimilation thing you're talking about. And I don't know that folks realize that maybe their stereotype hasn't caught up to how integral into these communities these folks are now. Yeah. And I mean, in the, in the case of Rio Grande Valley, I mean, they have always been, or at least for a real long time, been the cops and the business people and the, and from, from the small business people to the small shop owner to the, to the very wealthy. And, um, and then you have that spreading to the rest of, to the rest of the United States, particularly in Texas, where, I mean, you know, I live in Houston. I mean, the, um, the you know, the last po- Police chief was Cuban, not Mexican American, but Latino. Um, you know, there's no shortage of, of Latino cops. There's no shortage of Latino business people, and um, and I, and I would think that's that's the case as things spread throughout different parts of the country. To, and to me, it's interesting to see how that will play out as more Latinos vote to areas where there hasn't been a big Latino population, like Arkansas, North Carolina, places places like that. But that, but I, but I go back to you know, you know, when you look at voting. I mean, voting tends to follow certain demographics. And, you know, policemen tend to be, or law enforcement in general, and by them, including the Border Patrol, for example, tend to vote more, more on the conservative side, um, wherever they are. Um, small business people tend to do the same. So they're really, they're following a trend that would not be particularly noteworthy if it were among, you know, white voters in Texas, the term is Anglo voters. It's not a pejorative or anything like that. It's just used to differentiate, you know, white people who are who are latino versus you know those of you know anglo-saxon descent but um but the thing is it's somewhere you know the the you know no one would be surprised that that the policemen or or the business people in a you know in a small texas city yeah it's predominantly anglo we're going to be voting voting conservative and now that means voting republican you know that wasn't necessarily that wasn't the case for so long as we all know the democratic party dominated the south for you know for you know for over a century and that was not a liberal democratic party um you know and that was something where there was a you know there was a liberal and a conservative faction within the party and in a lot of ways the the hispanic vote in south texas wasn't always necessarily on the, on the liberal side of the, of the party. It would just depend on the issue and depend on the, um, you know, the, 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 what was salient at that particular day. We've talked about it before and it's been all over the national media. If you look close enough, uh, the democratic party really got obsessed over this demographics is destiny. There's parts of the Republican party that fall into this on the other spectrum and got into a really dark place with it in a hurry, but we'll leave that right. for another day. But the problem with when you get into that is you just start lumping these people into a demographic onto an Excel spreadsheet and you think they're going to act a certain way. But like you said, a Latino in Texas is probably going to be a little different than a Latino in Florida or a Latino that has moved to a northern state. You really start losing the fact that, you know, in there's an environmental and I don't mean the climate. I mean, where they live, where they work, the communities they start, you know, grown up in, raise their kids in. Those are factors that don't show up just under the heading Latino, but it greatly affects their politics and their cultural beliefs. Right. I mean, there's going to be a push and pull based on where you live. And then that's natural. I mean, and for that matter, if, you know, if it's say Latino who's made from more conservative background, who goes to a more liberal place, quote unquote, and they're going to be influenced by, by that just because that's the environment that, 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 that they're in. And again, that's, that's normal for me. I mean, you know, the, the idea of like, well, you know, the conservative family, the kid goes off to some liberal college and comes back, you know, kind of spouting off stuff. That they're just like stunned and, you know, and by their liberalism. Well, that's not, that happens everywhere. <laughs> and, um, and it's, so it's not going to be surprising that, that, you know, why would it be surprising then that that people who move to a particular place 
if the politics are more conservative, adopt it. And also, I, I don't think one can um, underestimate the importance of what I would call transactional politics, political patronage. Um, a lot of people who get involved in political activity, not necessarily for terribly ideological reasons. They just want to be involved in the public process. They want to, you know, they want power if you want to, you know, in a more mean way. And, um, and the, so they're going to do business with who's, who's there. And if you're in a state where the Republican Party is really dominant, then it would stand to reason a good chunk of people are going to become Republicans just for that reason, if, 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 for, if for nothing else, much less actual ideological reasons. And once you're around people and start working with them, it's natural to start in any group to start um, kind of inculcating you know, the values from, you know, from that group. So that, so that's why I think in a place like Texas, that the, the move hasn't been, you know, that, and first of all, the, the whole demographics is destiny. I mean, that's something that speaking personally, I mean, years ago, I was, you know, writing about in, in other places like Huffington Post saying, don't do this, please don't make this assumption. And, and, and part was for the reasons you're talking about that people change, you know, people act in unpredictable ways, but also just from my own experience, like I used to be a Republican myself and I knew plenty of Latino Republicans that I was, you know, in places like South Texas in particular, just thinking you, you shouldn't make these assumptions. And a lot of times people's partisan um, uh, makeup is based on local factors. I can even get, go a little specific. I mean, the South Texas uh, state reps uh, and and congressmen, often on social issues, um, would tend to vote more 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 with Republicans, like in the, in the Texas state legislature. And um, you know, even and they would be strong on issues, wanting to, on what you know you might call the um, you know social social spending that sort of thing, more traditional liberal. But but even then, it's like, is that shocking? I mean, a lot of in the old days, a lot of Northeastern, you know, what they used to call the the, the white ethnic Democrats, um, Polish, Italian, in, you know, and such in the Northeast were um, very pro New Deal, very much in favor of more, you know, kind of involving the economy to to help the poor. But they also were socially conservative, and um, and there was a drift there too. And that's and um, and again, you know, if you saw it there, why would you be surprised seeing it elsewhere? Talking to Mark Yizagiri. Did I get it right that time? Yes. Uh, our buddy Mark Yizagiri is talking uh, Latinos, uh, some writing he has done. When we come back on Hard Tell, we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper. Going to talk about a wonderful term he used called Rancho Libertarianism. Going to talk about what that is. Also talk broader spectrum, what it means when we try to just lump people into people groups. More with him right after this on Hard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our buddy Mark Yizagiri, who is a name grenade for me to have to get my hillbilly tongue wrapped around, but we're working really hard on it, my friend. Uh, you had a wonderful thing in your piece. I love this term. And then once you uh, extrapolated it out, I liked it even more. Rancho libertarianism. Uh, explain to us what rancho libertarianism is. Rancho Libertarianism, that's a great term cre created by a California writer, Gustavo Ariana, who is a great person to follow on Twitter, to, uh, on, on, um, you know, in, in media in general. He writes, I believe, for the LA Times. And it was a term that he came up with to talk about and the 
the the sort of conservatism that you see among among Hispanics, and he was talking more about California, you know, and, and maybe California rural Hispanics, maybe kind of in Inland Empire and that places like that. But yeah, but but it's certainly valid in Texas, and in fact, probably even more so. And there, I mean, it, you know, it's libertarianism, not in a sort of either Ayn Rand sense or in a really theoretical kind of Cato Institute sense. It's more of just a leave me alone sort of worldview. And it's it's basically just like you know, it's it's this idea of like being very you know, kind of fiercely independent. Often people who are maybe small landowners, you know, small you know have their own small ranches um, or they're you know small business people, and you know, and it's Latino, you know. So I mean, you also have the you know, all the things that go that whether it's you know uh, religion, you know, more more Catholicism than than you know than than not. Although there too, the one thing that's interesting there is the extent to which. Um, a lot of pro a lot of Hispanics have, have been converting to various Protestant, um, you know, to denominations, and that's really a, a lot of those t tend to be like Latino evangelicals tend to tend to definitely be, be more conservative um, um, than um, than a lot of Latino Catholics even, and 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 just this idea, but but also this like kind of you know a, a tie into a while they're ha happy to be in the United States and fiercely and fiercely patriotic, they also you know have a warm views towards Mexico. And you know that's the largest of the of the um, you know of the the countries that they came from, and you know whether it's manifesting in food and music and just sort of like a certain type of there's a, there is a certain kind of sense of humor. It's kind of hard to really describe, but basically that that when you're in you know a place like South Texas, you just kind of get. And, um, and, um, and that sense of humor is, you know, I mean, you could say is how it plays into mainstream American culture. It's not one that's, you know, it's definitely one that can frankly listen to a guy like Joe Rogan and laugh and, you know, and be, you know, yeah, I like that guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, me gusta. <laughs> and, um, you know, and they're not, and, you know, they're not, not, you know, not one for, you know, for being overly offended by things. And, um, and so that really play, that plays into it. It's 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 just a sort of cultural thing there that that is again not that different from you know from a, a, other people who are similarly situated. But yeah, but rancho libertarianism is, is a great concept that I think um, that that Gustavo Ariano you know you know came up with that really I think describes a certain uh, sense of it's not even ideology. It's more better to say sensibility, and that sensibility is. Even if it's people who live in big cities, there's a rural tinge to it, and I think that's one thing that particularly, say, you know, in a place like, and I always go back to Texas because that's where I'm from. You know, I live in you know Houston, Texas. You know, but I grew up in a smaller city, and yeah, I think the the amount of people who who are in the big cities of Texas, who are just one or two generations from at certainly a small town, much less even a ranch. Is, is is pretty high, higher than I think in California and other places. So again, you know that that the, there is a certain you know rural sensibility that I think is, you know is there that 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 feeds a certain type of again rancho libertarianism, a type, a type of conservatism. It 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 didn't necessarily mean that one voted Republican. In fact, it meant quite the opposite for a whole big period of American history. But right now, you know, it's definitely moving people. You know, and I don't want to overstate it. I mean, the Latino vote is still predominantly Democratic. But the thing is, if the, so much of that assumption from stuff like the emerging Democratic majority thesis from earlier in the 2000s is this idea that if you that you could have overwhelm that that for you would have overwhelming Hispanic support for the Democrats. 
you know, it, uh, the, the, the Republicans in Texas were able to maintain a working majority and did for, with people like George W. Bush and such with 40 percent of the Latino vote. You don't need a majority. You just need a big enough plurality to where you, you to where you can. That's enough to kind of get you certainly over the hurdle. With, you know, when you got come, to, you know, tied in with 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 other ethnic groups, but also just to me, it affects the the tenor of politics. I mean, and I think you know, I, I see it, and I just kind of cringe when I see people talk about. You know, I'm actually maybe agreeing with people on the ideological points or issues, but when they talk about well, you know, the Republicans are going to be just, you know, the anti-Latino party and things like that. Well, I might agree with that. Certainly, you know, you know tr- some of Trump's comments about, you know, the, you know, who was, you know, who would come across the border and, you know, Judge Curiel and these various things that he mentioned. But, you know, it's kind of hard to say with and be credible that a party is anti a particular group when really when millions of people in that group are voting for it. I mean, if, at that point, what are you going to start throwing out, you know, false consciousness as an idea? I mean, that's, an, you know, that's a buzzword that basically that, you know, that, that you know, that I'd, to me is at, at best, you know, a cop out or a cope, you know, if not, you know, if, if not, you know, something you know, even worse, you know, so. Yeah, I get maybe to hone in on that because you talked about Trump because we're shocked when the Rio Grande Valley had such good numbers for Trump. We also saw that uh, around Miami, parts of Florida, Latino voters more for Trump than what they probably thought. Is the sensibility you talk about more of that? Is that why they can take somebody like Trump who on its surface should be offensive to certain groups, but they just kind of laugh it off? You talked about the sensibility of the group. Maybe that's a better way to approach when we're talking about a subgroup of a subgroup, which we're talking about yeah. with like Rancho Libertarianism, uh, Latinos in specific areas, that sensibility is probably going to be a better way to approach this than just straight political or partisan divides, isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely going to be part of it. I mean, the, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors that go into it. I mean, there's the the there is this laugh it off factor of just like ah, oh, he's just you know he's just this guy who just you know blows off steam and you know kind of blusters and hey you know I'm kind of like that or I know people like that you know it's this sort of yeah and I think so there that's that too and there you can say part maybe cultural too particularly I mean I think I think you have more of a a a, a sensibility and way of speaking maybe in more kind of educated upper middle class circles professional circles that one doesn't speak a certain way while in other places no it's perfectly fine to speak that way <laughs> um, you know and and Trump tapped into it tapped into that um then there's purely kind of more again the material or demographic factors, like say in the Rio Grande Valley, where particularly in the more rural counties, um, Star and Zapata, those are the two that, you know, that people honed in on. And, and people honed in on them because the, the, when you have, I think part of also the fact that when you don't have really good exit polling, you start looking for other proxies. So when you have a county like that's like 90% or 95% Hispanic, you can say, well, how that county voted is an inch, you know, tells you something about at least a certain subject of Hispanic vote. It's safe to say that. And so, like in those counties, you also had the fact that a lot, a lot, a lot of a lot of people work for the Border Patrol. They are, they, they are, and and so you have and you have the ripple effect, like say the spouses and um, friends, you know, and also the people working in the oil industry, you know, working on rigs and that sort of thing. But yeah, but you go back to the surprise. And, and I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I'm definitely, I mean, if you look at my Twitter feed, I'm, you know, I'm not a Trump fan in any way, shape or form. And I'm pr- extremely, you know, n- not a Trump person. Um, but there was a lot who would, who still saw that they were okay with what he was saying. And even with respect to the issue of immigration itself, 
there's there's people say, well, you know, let's draw a line between illegal immigration and legal immigration. And you know, there's certainly some people, you know, right now on the right who don't necessarily want to make cross make that line. But there's a lot who you know who still still do and still will. And and the, and so people say, hey, you know, I came here legally, or my you know, family did. I, I promise it. Or even if they're not so worried about the illegality issue per se, they're wor- worried about crime. And, um, and just, and, and I can say, I mean, my, I still have family down there still, you know, we still have a little family ranch down that area and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a statistic, it's a very safe area. Your, your chances of getting mugged or harmed when you're walking through Rio Grande city or Brownsville are a heck of a lot less than if you're walking through a lot of parts of Houston, Dallas, I can tell you that much, but, um, but, but the thing is, but there's still this feeling that there, that there is this danger across the border and it's a very real one. I mean, not only with the, not so much even the the, the people crossing uh, who are involved with, you know, no one's no one's terribly frightened about the people who are crossing to come just to come work, but you know there is the cartels across the border, and that's real. And I, it, it, it's denial to say that it's no big deal there. No, there's been a terrible amount of violence that there, and and people who used to go um, across the the border on a regular basis just don't do it as much anymore. Um, and, um, and that, and that's created a real, and I think that's maybe created more of a feeling from people there of just like, no, I mean, I really identify with the North side of that river and I want to be, you know, I, I want to, there's certain things on the South side. I really want to keep away. And it's not because of racism and it's not because of some false consciousness of, oh, you're, and that's something that bugs the, the hell out of me when I hear talk about speed, like, oh, well, you're identifying with, you know, with the Anglos or identifying, like, look, I mean, there may be some people who are that, that, that falls in that category, but I mean, most people, I mean, when you, t- when you see the, 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 uh, the friend of mine went down and, and like, and like did kind of talk to people at like Trump rallies, like the ones where they do the trucks you know, the big kind of, kind of those big kind of ones where they're, where they're driving stuff. And, and um, she went to South Texas and interviewed people there. And she was just saying the thing that, 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 that was striking was, you know, was number one, these people are having fun. It was like, it was fun. She said it, it was impossible to go there and not smile. It's like, okay, I may not agree with the, 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 the politics here, but yeah, but th- this is not a, a, a people who are a grim group of people. And, um, and they were not, and they were Mexican-American. They were not, they were, you know, you know, whether, however you want to define that, the food, the music, the, the sensibility, you know, the language in some cases, you know, um, you know, they, they were not there because they were trying to act like, you know, uh, some, some group, some group that they were not, they were, they were who they were. And, but that also meant that they were supporting someone who, um, you would think they wouldn't. And the, and the fact is the numbers are there. I mean, it's just like, you saw the drift and not only in places like South Texas but places where they're able to do some more, again, that proxy kind of granular kind of analysis. I mean, my understanding is like in Houston and Dallas that they're, that in the precincts that are predominantly um, uh, Latino, that there was, a, that there was a shift towards Trump. Again, was it a majority? No, but, um, but it was a, uh, but it's like when you exp- and then to me, there's a real warning there for the Democrats. And is if if in 2020, the year where, where if, if it's like if, if, the, if the if the drift was able to go there in a year where you would think there'd be so much um, kind of headwind against against that because of, you know, the, because of Trump's policies or what you thought people how you thought people reply to them or respond to them. 
that that didn't happen. And boy, if that if that's the case, similarly, what about uh, in the future if you had maybe someone like a DeSantis or someone like that, where that baggage wouldn't even be wouldn't really be there? Um, that, that that's that's an issue. And I, and I would say, you know, my fellow Democrats, um, <laughs> you, you've got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Mark, Mark Izagiri, uh, great stuff. As always, the moral of the story is the national headline doesn't meet the local knowledge. So always dig into these stories a little bit. Great stuff, buddy. Let folks know where you, they can find you on social media and elsewhere. You've done a lot of writing in the past. We hope you do it in the future. We're always happy to have you at Ordinary Times anytime you get the itch to do so. Let Absolutely. folks know where they can find you, my friend. Sure. Um, you can find me on uh, best places on, on Twitter, just Mark, M-A-R-K-Y-Z-A-G-U-I-R-R-E, no dots or anything else, just there. Um, you know, uh, one of the benefits of having a very unique last name is um, easy to Google to see for articles and that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, the piece of Ordinary Times, MAGA and the RGV was what it was called. And, you know, people want to look that up. Um, the, 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 it kind of went to the de- detail of what we talked about here today. Um, and I did other stuff in the past, Huffington Post. Um, um, also, I started actually writing at a place called um, From Form that was um, kind of led by David From and back over a decade ago. And I've just been to various places. And um, yeah, feel free to follow on so- social media and to, to look at the articles. Yeah, and we hope we get him in ordinary times anytime he wants it. So an open invitation, my friend. Absolutely. Good in-depth stuff on something that gets glossed over way too often. And we greatly appreciate it. It's what we try to do here on Herdtel. Thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell Show. You know we always try to end on a good or a happy note. A lot of times that involves food, and this one does this too. Let's go out to Montana, Great Falls, Montana. This is KTVH.com. Two women, reading from the website, surprised some of the truckers camped out in sweetgrass on Wednesday morning with fresh food, water, and even toiletries. Two truckers that Montana interviewed on Thursday called the station and told us about a woman named Holly from Helena. I didn't know what was going on. I just woke up and a woman was there passing out soups and sandwiches and water. And I asked her where she was from. And she said they came from Helena, said Garrett Lang, a Canadian truck driver stranded in Montana. Uh, I was so touched that people who didn't even know us and probably will never see us again were willing to drive for hours, four hours to bring, uh, to bring us food they probably spent all day preparing Jason Junk, another one of the truckers we spoke to yesterday, called us about the situation as well. He said, quote, we want to extend our biggest thank you to those who are willing to help us out. Shortly after Holly left, another truck pulling a trailer full of toiletries and even more food showed up. The truckers were unable to get the woman's name, but are incredibly thankful. I cannot express how thankful I am to these women. And it brought tears to my eyes. Uh, these folks have been stranded uh, up in Montana uh, from the piece. Semi-trucks continue to be backed up in the area surrounding the Sweetgrass Couts Port of Entry at the Montana-Alberta border. Uh, that is some desolate country up there. So if you're stranded, you're really stranded because there's not a whole lot out there. The folks wanted some food. They took it. Good on them. Always happy to see food being used to a good purpose. That'll do it for Herd Tell today. Exciting stuff. Um, we have coming up. On Monday's show, uh, yesterday we covered the VA story about the Blue Water veterans. Uh, that was written by a lady named Ashley Merriman, quite an accomplished uh, writer. She has two 
New York best-selling books, has done all kinds of media. If you see her, you'll probably recognize her. We have her on her tell Monday. We're going to revisit that story. She's going to tell it to you herself better than what I can explain. Very personal story involving her own stepfather, but it is emblematic of what so many veterans have to deal with the VA. Do not miss that on Monday's show. Uh, even more exciting, uh, the return of the long-form podcast will be coming out this weekend, talking mental health with Dr. Katie Gordon. Do not miss that. Uh, we are going to start delving into some really important topics on the long-form podcast. Those will come out on the weekends. We'll stu- still do the weekday herd tell right here, however you're watching on YouTube or on the Big Talkers Facebook page or listening, any of the podcasting platforms or the podcast aggregators, however you're listening, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you're leaving a rating and comment. Reach out to us, uh, herdtellshow at gmail.com, at herdtellshow on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Got an idea, got a question, got epistles, comments, whatever, let us know. If keep your bearing and are nice about it, might even put it on the show. We've already done segments on this program and topics because of listeners asking us to touch on them. We're happy to do so. We want to turn down the noise of the news cycle, and that starts with you telling us what you need information on. We're happy to provide it. So, however you're watching or listening, thank you so much for joining us today on Hertel. Be back on Monday. Check out the podcast for the weekend. Check out all the back episodes if you've ever missed them or the Good Talk interview segments. We've got over 30 interviews on that playlist now. Great stuff. Can't wait to talk to you on Monday. Have a great weekend wherever you and yours are. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you then on Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.